Hi, and welcome to the Willowridge Church Weekly Podcast. This is where you can find audio for our current and past sermons. We hope that you enjoy this week's installment, and be sure to check back next week to hear the latest message. Thanks for listening. Good morning. If you've got your Bibles, go and open them up to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is where we will be today. want to remind y'all and reinforce a couple of the announcements that we just had, but tonight we will have a meeting for everyone who is interested in being a part of our Circle of Welcome team as we will be adopting a refugee family that is coming here to the United States from somewhere in the world. We don't know exactly where this family will come until they're assigned to us or given to us, but we're looking forward to that. And so this evening, if you've already signed up to be a part of this, or if you've just got questions and you want to find out more of what it's about, we'll be meeting at 6.30 in Building 2 in Room 200. And so that's the first room there on the right as you walk in. And so I look forward to all of you uh, who were interested to be there. I'm going to share some information, but largely just have an opportunity for you guys to ask questions about what this ministry will look like. Also, uh, today is the last Sunday to get marriage conference tickets. That'll be this coming weekend. And so I would love for you to join us. Uh, We're really excited. We're excited as a staff. Uh, Aaron and I are excited as a couple to walk through this weekend with you guys, to walk through this in our own marriage, uh, and to see all that God is going to do and how God's going to bless us. And so it's going to be a wonderful, wonderful time. Uh, This is for newly married couples. This is for couples thinking about getting married. This is for couples that have been married for a while and you're in the thick of it with your teenagers. And this is for couples who have been married for a lot longer than I've been married, all right? It's going to be for all of us, and so would love for you to be able to join us. Well, as the pollen on my windshield reminded me this morning, in spite of the 42 degrees, it is springtime, which means Easter is going to be here before you know it. And so we've got these little printouts on, I think there's two on each row that are there. And so this is just an opportunity for you to grab this and throw this on your refrigerator. Well, last year we we did a couple of different things um, that seemed to resonate with our church family. And so we're going to continue on with some of those and add some different dynamics to it as well. And so this Easter, April 17th, we're going to have an 8 a.m. Uh, we thought about calling it a sunrise service, but let's be honest, the sun's been up long before then, all right? And so uh, an 8 a.m. outdoor service in the parking lot. We know that there's a lot of people that enjoyed that time of worship, of being outdoors. We are in prayer that it'll be substantially warmer than it was this time last year. And so we will have that service at 8 a.m. Now, the flow of the service is going to look a little different, but we will be taking the Lord's Supper together, and the message will be the same as it will in the later service. And then something else that we're going to be doing this year, which I'm excited about, is we're going to provide a full hot breakfast for our church family that Easter morning at 9 a.m. And so if you're coming to the 8 o'clock service, you can stay, you can have breakfast with us as a church family, and then the next service will start at 10 a.m., and that'll be the the indoor, our, our normal service that we have. And so what we're hoping that we can do as a church family is come together, if you're coming to the earlier service or you're coming to the later service and we can come together for a wonderful time of breakfast and fellowship as we celebrate the fact that the tomb is 
empty. And so I'd like to encourage you uh, to be a part of that. Also, with that said, uh, this card is a wonderful thing like for you and for us at the Bradbury's to be a reminder, but it's also a wonderful opportunity to invite someone. And so if you know of someone looking for a place of worship on Easter morning, please use this and invite them, and we'll be uh, looking forward to seeing all that God is going to do that day. We'll take the Lord's Supper at both, same message at both service, so pick which ones you feel like you would, you would worship at. As we look at uh, chapter 11 this morning, I want to go and share, we're, we're going to cover the entire chapter, and it's going to be broken down into three parts. Uh, I had a pastor at the first church that I served at, and it was getting ready to do something. He said, just, just give me a little sermonette. And I'm like, well, what do you mean by that? He's like, you know, take what you would say and just divide it down. I'm like, all right. So that's what I was responsible for doing. And as I was going through this chapter this week, there's three definite sections as we walk through that, that overlap, and we're going to talk about that in just a second, that, that overlap, but they seem to be thematically isolated from each other. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at each one of those uh, individually, but understanding that that what, what Paul is doing to the church at Corinth and what Paul is doing for us is reminding us of the truth of God's standard, of God's expectations, of what it means to, to fully surrender to him in his way, that, that you and I, that we agree that, that, that we and society should not be the ones to, to dictate and to understand and to set truth, but that Christ does this for us. And so that'll be the theme that kind of works through as, as Paul's working with the Corinthian church. And so let's begin. We're going to read just the first verse to begin in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1. Paul says... Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And what we're going to look at from the very beginning here, what I want us to grasp is, is the defining piece of what God is establishing for us, of what Paul is showing of biblical leadership. Now, the church at Corinth, where, where Paul is, is a church that is filled with, with young and new believers. It's something that we actually talked about a little bit this week as a staff. I want you to think about this. These people, a lot of us, maybe not all of us, but a lot of us grew up in church. A lot of us got saved at a young age, and, and Christianity and our faith is, is all that we've ever known. But some of us, it's a, it's a different story, Right? Some of us maybe grew up in church but came to faith at a different age as an adult. Or some of you maybe have never had a background or experience with church and you've come here and as an adult you've become a believer. Maybe some of you in the last several weeks or several years. And then some of you may be here today and you're, you're not a believer at all. But when, when you think about the context in which Paul is, is writing this, this letter that Christianity right, did not exist and so the dynamic of which Paul is bringing this to them is everyone here is young, everyone is a new believer, and, and, it, and it's fair to say, not in a way that's condescending, but in establishing the, the depth of their faith, they were immature in their faith. And we're, we're seeing a lot of that for what we're working through. And, and so Paul takes a, a vulnerable step out there and says to them, be imitators of me, as I am of Christ. Now, draws a question. Is this a little arrogance from, from Paul? And I would say no. But this isn't cockiness that Paul is showing. Instead, this is confidence. 
It's confidence in who he is and it's confidence in who he is in the gospel. I mean, I want you to think about that. I don't know if you've ever been shadowed by someone, right? Whether it be at work, but when someone's job, when someone's responsibility is to watch you and then emulate you, right? It'd be overwhelming. And Paul says, watch me, emulate me, not as a tent maker, not as just simply a person, but as a follower of Christ. And in that is, is making himself completely vulnerable and transparent in here. But what Paul doing is he's setting the standard. And I think here's a piece that's important. If Paul had said, just be like me, be like Paul, he misses it. He misses it. But what Paul does here is he says, imitate me as I am of Christ. So what's Paul seeking? Paul's seeking to imitate Jesus and in that imitate me. And he sets Christ as the standard. Now, this isn't the first time he's done this. In 1 Corinthians 4, starting in verse 16, he does this here as well. He says, I urge you then be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. And here's what's key. To remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere into every church. And so Paul's standard is, is this. Paul's standard for himself and Paul's standard for the church is Christ. So he's who we look at. He's who we emulate. He's the one that sets the standard. It's not you that sets the standard. It's not me that sets the standard. It's not Paul that sets the standard. It's Christ that sets the standard. And Paul, in vulnerability of leadership, steps before them and says, then imitate me because this is what I'm seeking after. And when you see those pieces that don't line up, that's my sin. Call me out. Paul's addressed the accountability that comes. He's addressed what you do with sinful behaviors. But he says, if you need a standard, if you need to see it in flesh, look at me as I seek to imitate Christ. Now, the reason I I call this biblical leadership and not just church leadership as Paul is a pastor is because this leadership model isn't just for church leadership, but it's for all. As I challenge you this morning, as we gather in here today, as we go from here to your homes, as you get up in the morning to head to work, as you take your journey to the grocery store, as you go out to coach your little league team, as you go out to lead in your neighborhood association, is what is the standard for which you are modeling? What is the standard for which you are emulating? What is the standard for what you are imitating in your life? And if it's anything other than Christ, it's insufficient. It's insufficient, it will fall and it will fail. Because Jesus is the standard. Jesus is the standard. And so as Paul begins this, it's a continual reminder for the church that's here to imitate Christ. But in order for them to do that, in order for those young and those for those immature, Paul says, then I'm going to put myself out there. And is that what we're willing to do? Are we willing to do that in our marriage? Are we willing to do that in our families? 
Husbands, what does your wife see in you? Parents, what do your kids see from you? Managers, what do your workers see in you? Coaches, what do your players see from you? Right? Is it Christ and who you are because he's your standard? Let's keep reading, starting verse 2. He says, now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I had delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ and the head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it's disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority over her head because of angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, the woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as a woman was made from man, so man is now born of a woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourself. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, is it her glory? For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. I was read through this this week and studied this this week. A lot of this has to do with head coverings. And I'll be honest with you, I believe is what Paul was journeying through, journeying through with the church at Corinth and dealing with head coverings is dealing with a first century Corinth uh, situation of, of culture that's there. But there's a lot of truth of application that comes out of this that we can begin to see as we begin to see God's view and God's standard on gender. And I don't know about you, but it seems that the topic of gender has become a hot topic over the last several years. And this debate got even more publicly drawn this weekend, or this past week. I don't know if you watch sports, there's a big sports championship going on right now. NCAA March Madness. My South Carolina Gamecocks still have not lost in March Madness, right? They're not playing in it either, but they haven't lost in it, right? The men's team, the women's team, and they're rolling right through. But there's also been some others, and there was the swimming championships that took place as well. And the University of Pennsylvania, which is an Ivy League school, school, has a male swimmer who identifies, I'll put that in quotes in my notes, as a female. And this swimmer, this man, competed this past week in the women's 500 freestyle in the women's division, even though he's a biological male. And he won. And so this has brought out a lot of discussion, a lot of questions. I would say if you roll through social media, it's probably one out of every four posts that you see 
is something defined in this debate. As we tend to turn to other things to set the standard. But as we look through this passage of Scripture, and as we look through the Bible as a whole, what I want us to draw to this morning is this, that God decides, God defines, and God designs gender. We don't get to decide this. God decides it. God decides male or female. All right, go to the garden. He made man as man, and when he saw that man was incomplete, and we'll talk about this in just a second, he didn't add a part or take a part away. Instead, he created woman. In Genesis 2, verse 15, it said, the Lord took the man, in a little quick little language, this is man in gender, not mankind. He took man and put him, what the Bible says, in the garden of Eden, to work it and keep it. And then you look down at verse 18, and then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man, again gender, should be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And so he made woman, Genesis 2, 22. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, different gender, and brought her to the man. God decides. It's not up for debate. In a Christian ethic, in a Christian narrative, in the study of God's word, this is what we come to. You and I do not get to decide these things. It's not feelings that decide, but it's the sovereign holy Lord who does. And so men be men, and women be women, as God designed. Now, in situations like with this swimmer. What do we do with this? What do you and I do? What do we say? How do we respond? What is our posture? And coming alongside in what God's word has laid out for for us and seeing how Jesus walked alongside individuals who were hurting and broken and walking through the only areas of my life where I've chosen my set or my standard before the Lord's and where people walk alongside me. What has drawn me to the Lord? We stand with truth. We continue to provide help. We give prayers. In church, we show compassion and love for those who are seeking anything outside of the will of the Lord. So not only does God decide, but God defines gender. God defines gender. And when we look at this, God defines as male and female, but equal. Look back at verses 11 and 12 of 1 Corinthians 11. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. 
For as a woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. So where we are in equality, in gender, men and women, is this, that we were both beautifully and wonderfully made in the concept of Imago Dei, the truth of Scripture of the Lord, back in Genesis 1, 26 through 27. Then the Lord said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God made man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So Aaron and I are equally made in the image of the Lord. My son and my daughter are equally made in the image of the Lord. And so God gives us the beauty of equal value. We're equally desirable to him. God gives equal dignity. We are equally worthy to him. And he gives us equally love. He loves us equally. This is who he is regardless and in the context of gender. He defines us differently. I'm sorry, he, he, he de- describes us differently but defines us equally of who we are in Christ. But then because he's the creator, because he's the one who creates, he's the one who decides He's the one who designs their purpose as well. It's not just that God decides, that God defines, but God also designs their purpose also. Verse 3 in 1 Corinthians 11. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is the church. And so what we begin to see here is a differing, not an equality, not an equality, not in God's love, not in the worth that he places, but in the purpose of what he gives in the context of gender. Like you and I are equally called to live our lives for the glory of God, but God begins to define differently in the context of purpose. In Ephesians 5, Paul walks through with this several weeks ago. We talked about this as well, but he led the charge of men lead. Men in the context of your marriage lead, and then again he sets the standard, not lead because you're a man, but lead because of Christ. And you lead like Christ. Not lead out of your ego, not lead out of your preference, not lead out of personality, not lead out of arrogance, not lead out of sin, not lead out of because you want to tell someone what to do, but lead in the image and in the likeness of Christ. So what does this mean? What does this look like? Well, without going through and reading through all four Gospels, let's see how Jesus led. Jesus led in sacrifice. He was sent here to serve is what he tells us. Jesus led in love and showed compassion and kindness to men, to women, to religious and to lost. He led in love. He led in forgiveness and in grace 
It's who he is. He didn't withdraw, but he poured this out and he, he led in their betterment, in their betterment of seeking for them to seek after the things of the Lord. And to summarize it, men, Jesus led from the fruit of the Spirit, of the imagery that we see. And every single thing that he did, and every single thing that he worked toward, and every single thing that he accomplished, he led in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's the standard of leadership. And men, that's what we're called to emulate. That's how we're called to lead our wives. That's how we're called to lead our children. And that this would be the standard what's there. Right? And women, ladies, the longing and the desire to follow this biblical leadership. It's what Ephesians 5 points us to. That they follow, they submit like the church does to Christ. We don't follow Peter. We don't follow Paul. We follow them in Christ as they imitate Christ, as they work toward Christ. And that's the standard for this as well, that ladies come alongside. And when we look back at the narrative, to be the helpmate that God has provided, not in a lessening form, but as we lead, as Christ leads, as we stay in line with his will, as we stay in line with our purpose. And then you just think about this. Why do you follow Christ? Everyone in here, why do you follow Christ? Because you know who he is. You know his sacrifice. You know his love. You know his forgiveness. You know his truth. You know his peace. And this is what draws us to him. This is what causes us to cling to him. Right? And as we see, this is what we follow toward and what we go. Follow like the church, follow from biblical leadership. Now, whether the topic that you're working through is gender or not, we can sit in here and say and, and go around and poll everyone about their standard of gender, their belief of gender. And maybe where you are is where I am as we draw these things from, from Scripture. But here's what I think the, the, the bigger question we want to draw from. Are you living your life under the clear expectations of the Lord? Or are we living our life based off of what we determine is right or wrong? What are we journeying toward? What are we allowing to, to move toward the definition of that? Right? Let's keep reading verse 17. Paul says, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you, in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? 
or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and we'd given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself, then... And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, would we not be judged? But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Now, one of the things that you think would be a celebratory time in the life of the church would be partaking of the Lord's Supper together. It's one of my favorite things that we do together as a church. Uh, if you're new here, uh, are, are typically what we will do is we take the Lord's Supper together the first Sunday of every month. We'll take the Lord's Supper together on Easter, and we'll take the Lord's Supper together on Christmas Eve. And so depending on how all those days fall, on average, we're, we're usually taking the Lord's Supper together around 14 times a year. And it is a wonderful part. It is a wonderful time time of worship as it causes us to focus on who Christ is. But Paul says here that the division has been created in the church during the taking of the Lord's Supper because how they are treating the Lord's Supper. And so I'm going to kind of explain to you a little bit what is happening here at Corinth so that we can draw from this and begin to look at our own lives with how we take the Lord's Supper, not only as a, as a church, but more importantly, individuals as we partake in this together. So the, the, there would be a meal that would happen before the Lord's Supper would take place. And this meal that would happen before the Lord's Supper is where the the root of disunity had taken hold in the church. Now, this meal was supposed to show unity amongst the church. Now, uh, having breakfast together on Easter is not just to, to save everyone so they don't have to fix breakfast at home, all right? That's not why we're doing that. We're, we're, we're having an opportunity where we can come together as a family on a day that's special to us and use this time of fellowship together and right worship for the Lord, all right? That's why we're doing this as an opportunity as, as we come and we get our seats on Sunday mornings and maybe we don't see or know other people that are here. It gives us an opportunity of what we hope of building the unity of fellowship amongst the body. 
And so the church at Corinth and other churches have done this for years. Baptists didn't invent the potluck, even though we like to think that we did, all right? But we see this in, in Scripture. We see churches coming together, men and women and children, and eating a meal together to bring unity amongst the church. But this isn't what was taking place in Corinth. And what the meal had done is the meal had broken the church into different segments, largely the haves and the have-nots. So here's what would take place. The time of the meal was earlier in the day. And, and we know how our world works, okay? And, and so, but I want us to think through the work day of, of a Corinthian man or woman. They didn't have a five-day work day, and some of you don't as well. They had, for most of them, a seven-day work day. And this work time could break off shorter if you owned the business or you were a wealthier influencer in the town of Corinth and it extended on past that if you weren't wealthier. Well, because the beauty of the gospel is the gospel crosses socioeconomic lines, right? Just as it crosses lines of race, lines of culture, and, and even lines of gender, right? So the gospel is for everyone. So gathered in here today, we have people, we have individuals and families from different socioeconomic backgrounds and standings within our community. But what the church of Corinth had done, I'm just going to throw out some generic times, all right? And let's say that everyone was off work by 5.30. They'd start the meal at 4. And the wealthier people, because they could, brought most of the food. And so they would show up at four, they would get, the, they would get everything set out, they have the, the nice cuts of, uh, of meat, they have the nice dishes like, like the prime casseroles in first century Corinth are taking place there, right? And then the poor people who couldn't get there, who couldn't bring the nicer food would come later. Well, I don't know about you, but one of the things that we like to do, one of the things that we like is, is let's wait till everybody gets here. But instead of waiting... They decided, no, 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 we'll just go ahead and go forward. So by the time the, the other group of the church, the, 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 the have-nots, got there, the seating in the house was taken. Most of the food was gone. And so they were left to feel as if they were second-class citizens, now you sit outside, you get the scraps, you get the crumbs that are there. And, and Paul's driving point to them was, look, this isn't a family of unity, but it's a family of division. And so some show up and you're fed and they're hungry. Some show up and you've been there so long, you're drunk. Right? And you see the brokenness that's there. And so at that point in time of moving forward, it doesn't matter if you say all the right things in the Lord's Supper. It doesn't matter if you have the proper elements during the Lord's Supper. It doesn't matter if you have the right songs picked out for the Lord's Supper. It doesn't matter if you say the right prayers during the Lord's Supper because your heart is filled with disunity and brokenness and there's no love for your brother or sister in Christ. That's Paul's driving point. And so what I have for us to think through 
is our heart and the Lord's Supper. Our heart and the Lord's Supper. Now the Lord's Supper, it's for believers. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, regardless of your denomination, regardless of how long you've been a Christian or not, the Lord's Supper is for all of us who are believers. The Lord's Supper causes us to look at and recognize the sacrifice that Christ made in his body as he took on the debt and the punishment that we deserved. He died for my sin and your sin. And so we partake of the body and representative of the bread, and then we partake of the cup, right, which represents his blood, which washes us and makes us clean and gives us proper standing and identity in Christ, in Christ alone. And we can know this. We can talk about this. But what Paul presses toward the church at Corinth and what Paul presses toward us as well, even if you're a believer, there's something that you need to work through. There's some things you need to to dialogue with yourself in your heart in taking the Lord's Supper. And the first one is is this, examine yourself. Examine yourself. I read an author that said, and as he was continuing through, of Jesus being the standard. He said, examine yourself not based off the actions of others, but examine yourself based off the sacrifice of Christ. And am I broken for my sin? Is there unrepentant sin in my life? Do I desire the will of God? Do I seek to be obedient? Not am I perfect and got it all figured out, but where is my heart in this time? Examine yourself. And church, I wanna say this. Sometimes we walk in here and we're bringing in the baggage of last week, right? We're bringing in the baggage of this morning. And sometimes in taking the Lord's Supper, maybe one of the most spiritually mature things that we could do is say, I'm not ready. I'm not ready. Not not for me today. Because we've examined our heart. Another aspect that's here, what Paul points them to, with going back to this previous dinner and the standing between the church, is examine your relationships. Examine your relationships. Is there something broken between me and another brother and sister in Christ? If so, seek to restore it before we take the Lord's Supper. Do I have ill will towards someone? You know, when you see them and it just makes you sick. But they're brother and sister in Christ. If so, seek repentance before you take. Do I not love my brothers and sisters in Christ? Am I so self-focused that I don't have love for them? If so, take a time to focus to God in prayer to change your heart before I take Take a time to examine your heart. Take a time to examine your relationships. And I want to give you permission this morning. If you take the Lord's Supper out of obligation, then stop. If you take the Lord's Supper 
out of a sense of religious uh, nature and piousness, then stop. If you take out of fear of what others will say, then stop. But start again with a pure heart, with godly relationships, and recognizing the sacrifice of Jesus and the power that it has on every aspect of your life. Would you pray with me? Lord, we come to you this morning. Lord, honestly and transparent, transparently with a, a heavy passage of Scripture this morning. But God, could we, could we be reminded of the standard that you set for us of Christ? Lord, in so many of these things that we are seeing at the church of Corinth, whether it's the situation dealing with the head coverings, whether it's the Lord's Supper, whether it's meat sacrificed to idols, whether it's divisions within the church, whether it's lawsuits amongst believers, whether it's the pursuit of sexual morality, the pursuit of idolatry, or the truth that just continues to pour out, is that it's men and women who are seeking their own will and their own standard above you. And your will and your standard and your desire for our life. And so Lord, maybe the topics that came out of chapter 11 this morning ring home to some of us or maybe they don't. Lord, I'd ask and I plead in the power of your spirit that you would show us these areas in our life where we have determined that we're going to put our ego and our pride and our sin above you. And in Lord, in your discipline that strengthens us, that loves us, that causes us to, to drink out of the sweetness of your grace. Lord, could you bring us to that this morning? It's not about me being right. It's about me glorifying you. And living for the glory of your name.
Thanks again for listening to the Willow Ridge Church weekly podcast. We hope that you enjoyed listening to this week's message. If you'd like to learn more about who we are or explore additional resources, visit us online at www.willowridgechurch.com or by searching for Willow Ridge Church on Facebook and Instagram.